So really nice to see you all, uh, really good to see so many people on a Tuesday afternoon, on a hot Tuesday afternoon. Uh, so this morning, for those of you who weren't here, we had a total immersion, at least as total as we could manage, of the man with the blue guitar, Stephen's very famous uh, poem in 33 cantos, uh, which we explored at least to some degree. It's a part of a whole day that we're running on Wally Stevens. Now, people might wonder why we're having a day on Wallace Stevens. Is it a Wallace Stevens day? You know, is it celebrating his birthday? It's just because I fancied it. Um, um, I think I, Stevens is a, is a poet I go back to again and again. Um, I have a great love of Stevens. And I suggested to Chloe and, uh, that we had this day on Stevens. And uh, she's always up for a new idea, so we decided to have this day. And then this afternoon we're going to explore different... Uh, critics' uh, opinions on Stevens, and then later on this afternoon at 5.30, I'm going to be in conversation with Mark Doty, who's flying over from New York. I don't know, I hope he's landed. <laughs> he's going to come and talk about Stevens with me this, uh, later on this afternoon. Um, so I thought what we're going to do, how we're going to do this is, each of us, the three of us, are going to introduce ourselves. Um, we've all got, for some people, slightly difficult to pronounce names, so we'll all introduce ourselves. And then uh, each person has chosen a poem that they're going to do a close reading of. And we have our readers over there who are the, here this morning. They're going to read the poems. And then we're going to, each, person, each one of us will do a close reading of one poem. Uh, I'll keep an eye on the time if I can. And then we'll hopefully have a bit of time to talk amongst ourselves about Stevens. And um, we'll take it from there. Okay. So... Without more ado, why don't you introduce yourselves? Um, my name is Srishti Krishnamurthy Cavell. I am, well, I have been completing a PhD on contemporary experimental poetry and eco poetics for what now seems like forever, but hopefully I'm in the last. <laughs> I've been saying I'm in the final year for a very long time, but I'm hopefully in the last two months of it. Um, and I'm a Ledbury emerging poetry critic. So I'm Mariam Hasavi. I'm um, a Manchester-based poet and critic, um, which came about as part of the Ledbury Emerging Critics Programme. Um, that was something that was set up last year um, in order to, in Ledbury in order to um, open the space up for some more diversity in terms of poetry criticism. And eight of us were all assigned mentors to um, help us with that. So that's what we've been doing over the time, and I suppose that's how we've been introduced into the festival. That's where it started, isn't it? Can you say anything more about the Emerging Critics Programme? Sure. What, what was the kind of impetus behind it? It'd be good to hear a little bit about that. A bit more, okay. So I think there was some, um, there was some research done that, that showed how poetry criticism is overwhelmingly dominated by only some kinds of voices. Um, so... Um, and there is quite a lack of, uh, in particular, uh, poets of minority ethnicity and critics of minority ethnicity being represented within this critical landscape. So um, Sarah Howe and Sandeep Omar started this, where it was, it was essentially, um, as, as Mariam said, a way to, to redress some of these concerns, to redress as well as address some of these concerns, I suppose. Um, and there was an application procedure yeah. and then a, f a bunch of us applied, I guess, and, and eight people were selected to be part of the Poetry um, Criticism Fellowship. 
and we've been mentored um, by you know, senior poets as well as poetry critics and um, academics who work on poetry for the last year. And we've been writing for loads of different publications and it's, it's just been really wonderful to sort of try and step into this, this, this somewhat intimidating network and institution of poetry criticism, um, but also really to explore political as well as poetic questions from, from the standpoint of diversity. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Anything you'd add to add that? Um, no, except to say that um, obviously over the period of time that we've mm. been doing this, um, it was something that it, it's the first time that um, they, they did it, and it so far it's worked uh, maybe too well. We've got too much work, and there's it, what's really nice and reassuring is the amount of interest um, and the amount of doors that have been opened um, for this. So. Yeah, for me, it's, it's worked really well, and it's an excellent program which has opened up a lot of opportunities and doors and given us a lot of experience that I think actually is already starting to make a difference potentially in terms of the statistics when the research has come out recently, hasn't it? Mm -hmm. And, yeah. Can I just see whether we can just turn this it's a little bit to a bit of, what do you call it? Feedback. Feedback in the, on the, so if you just turn it down a little bit, just otherwise... So my name is Maitreya Bandhu. Uh, I'm not part of the Emerging uh, Critics Programme. Not, I'm not actually part of any programme. Um, uh, well, perhaps I'm not, perhaps I am. I don't know. <laughs> um, I'm, uh, the reason I've got that such an unusual sounding name, I'm, um, uh, I'm an ordained Buddhist. I've been ordained for 28 years. I founded Poetry East at the London Buddhist Centre, where I invite uh, many of uh, the, uh, the countries and abroad's best poets like um, Mark Doty, that I'm in conversation with later, will be coming to Poetry East at the London Buddhist Centre on Saturday, and I'll be interviewing there about his work. Um, and I've been working a lot with Chloe and the Lebri Festival, and uh, we've, we've done quite a lot of work in partnership together, so I was very just excited to join this project. So let's... Ah, that's right. I think I'll start with you. So let's start with your... Say, say something about your, your, your choice of poem, and... Perhaps give us a little bit of context for that. Okay, so the poem that I chose to... I say close read, but because of the nature of the poem, I think that it's going to have um, a little bit more context than I'd normally apply to uh, an analysis in a short space of time, and that's light decorations in a nigger cemetery. Um, I chose this poem because it, it's, it's certainly a controversial poem, but it also marks... Um, a, a significant turning point in um, Wallace Stevens' work and the fact that it's had such little attention which is something I'll, I'll go into and, and maybe consider later on but the fact that it's had so little attention given that it is a key point in his writing career I thought was interesting and I thought it would be interesting in the context of the whole day to maybe bring something slightly different into the conversation and a different perspective. So what? It's quite a long poem. It's got how many sections? Fifty. It's fifty parts. Fifty parts. So that's a bit long for just now. So we um, we're going to have four sections uh, read by our readers, and then we might come back to some of them as well. So let's let's hear some of the poem. So we alternate. Just going through all four. Uh, just yeah, read those four and alternate. I think. Okay. 
just to get different voices on it. In the far south, the sun of autumn is passing like Walt Whitman walking along a ruddy shore. He is singing and chanting the things that are part of him, the worlds that were and will be, death and day. Nothing is final, he chants. No man shall see the end. His beard is of fire and his staff is a leaping flame. Sigh for me, night wind, in the noisy leaves of the oak. I am tired. Sleep for me, heaven over the hill. Shout for me, loudly and loudly, joyful sun, when you rise. It was when the trees were leafless first in November, and their blackness became apparent, that one first knew the eccentric, to be the base of design. From Oriole to Crow, note the decline in music. Crow is realist, but then Oriole also may be realist. Always the standard repertoire in line, and that would be perfection. If each began not by beginning, but at the last man's end. Thank you. Thank you. So initially I said about the poem that um, it's, it's had little scholarly attention in terms of analysis and when it has been de dealt with on the large, it's been dealt with um, quite briefly. Mm. Um, in more recent criticism, there's been the suggestion that there are two key points that might be associated with that. One is the stylistic complexity of the poem. As I said, it, it comes at what we might consider a turning point in um, Stephen's writing, and so it, it, it does feel a bit different, and it's a bit of a transition. And the second point, which I think might be obvious from the title, is that um, there are the ethical considerations in it, and, and potentially, especially if we look initially at the title, a sense of ethical callousness that can become or maybe feel quite daunting for anybody to approach and address this poem. And then to marry those two um, points and ways of looking at it, which I think are entirely necessary to look at a poem, because we can't look at one and not the other, especially in this context with a poem that so explicitly references that racial slur. Um, I think to marry those in, in an approach to criticizing poetry and analyzing poetry is also a difficult thing. Um, and that model of approach is not, I think, in, in terms of models for approaching poetry, I think a lot of the time it is, it is more schools of thoughts on either or. Um, and that's possibly a reason why it hasn't had so much attention. So just the context in brief, first of all. The poem was published in 1935 by Poetry. Um, and regarding the title specifically, which is potentially the thing that um, stands out the most and, and, and you continually refer back to when you do read the poem, and, and that's not an unconscious thing for someone like Stevens, who's obviously um, able to write poetry very, very well and knows what he's doing in that poetry and considers it deeply. 
Um, in a letter to the publisher, Stevens offered perhaps one of the more um, limited glosses over this poem than he did with other poems, in saying that the title refers to the litter one usually finds in a nigger cemetery and is a phrase used by Judge Powell last winter in Key West. So he had taken the phrase apparently um, and come up with decorations instead of litter. So formally, it's made up of 50 disjunctive epigrams, and these might be considered, um, and some recent criticism considers these, as forms of aesthetic symbolism adapted from the African-American culture of decorating the graves of the dead with particular objects. They were referred to by Powell, for instance, as, as litter, but um, they, they had deep significance, and these are looked upon as an artistic custom. Some of them were objects from... Um, the deceased's work, like a sewing machine, for instance, that kind of linked between mm. the life here and the life that they've now passed to. Um, other things were objects that maybe that person um, had touched. It was the last thing that they touched, and that would have been put on the grave, like dolls' heads and things like that. Um, so there was a lot of significance attached to that, and it's interesting because those objects form symbols of, of some kind of desire to get a connection between those two worlds, which, mm. I, as a concept... I think does marry very well with um, what Stevens tries to do all the time in his work is is that oscillation between um, the imaginative world and reality. Um, so I think that's one one possibility in terms of what Stevens might have been trying to do here in those 50 sections. The problem with that in terms of this poem um, is that it can be read to appropriate um, the African-American artistic custom in a very reductive way, which wholly dismisses the racial politics that the title clearly signifies. It, 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 it's a racial slur, and there's no um, way around that. In the poem, um, Stevens, or the voice, often mediates, as I said, and oscillates between those ideas of the imaginative and the real, and, and does pay deep attention to that in that in-between space and ambiguity, which again is another characteristic aspect of um, his work. In um, one of the sections, which we might be able to have read out, if not, I can read it. Um, it's section ten. Between farewell. Between farewell and the absence of farewell, the final mercy and the final loss, the wind and the sudden falling of the wind. So, oh, I'm sorry. That, is that the right one? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> it's the Roman numerals. They get me. Um, so as I said, the poem marks um, what's been termed in some of the criticism or thought of as an experimental piece um, in Stephen's aesthetic practice after what might be considered or has been considered um, a long silence in his work. And it's, it's one of the earlier long poems. And so it, it's seen as a kind of transitionary piece, if you like, um, when assessed in that way and, and as it discusses there those in-between spaces and the ambiguity is important. Um, because of it 
holding such significance and being um, a turning point in that respect. It's interesting, again, that such a significant turn in his writing practice is left largely unattended and um, from, from analysing the poem, from studying the poem. I, there are a lot of stylistic complexities in it, but the, 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 there's a lot to get from it and there's a, there's a lot that it gives um, in terms of analysis. So I would lean more to the side that potentially the title and the, um, the, the politics involved has caused um, some kind of issue in terms of analysis and people maybe feeling um, overwhelmed or not wanting to approach the issue or to consciously overlook it. Mm. Um, in the poem, questions are also raised around tradition. So when we're thinking about the, the transitionary period, um, in one of the sections, in section 40, which was read out earlier, can we read this? Yeah. Can we read section 40 yeah. again, please? Always the standard repertoire in line, and that would be perfection, if each began not by beginning, but at the last man's end. So this is one of the points in the poem where the content um, alludes to, and there are other areas as well, that idea of um, not necessarily starting at the beginning and, and taking, or, or running with the old tradition and taking that as it is, um, but moving forward and, and carrying the um, baton, if you like, or the torch, um, into a slightly renewed tradition. It's not an entirely new tradition, um, but it, it's something that's adapted um, going forward. And this pairs up with the, um, the form of the poem. So looking at rhyme, um, in section 25, which was read out earlier, which refers to um, the birds and the crow. Mm. From Oriole to Crow, note the decline in music. Crow is a realist, but then Oriole is also, also maybe a realist. It's significant that this, this section is um, exactly halfway through the poem. Mm. And up until that point, there's a clear pattern um, and there's a clear rhyme scheme where there's a lot of end rhyme and it's quite tightly knitted. It, it, it's irregular, but it's quite tightly knitted between those separate and um, segregated mm. sections. That, after this line, drops... And the, lines, the rhyme scheme sorry, becomes uh, much more irregular, it's much more sparse, and it's, it's internal. So there's a clear um, mm. aesthetic difference there and, and a clear difference in the rhyme, which the poem later discusses and talks about in terms of the role of the poet as to whether the poet is merely, and this is um, highlighted in other poems as well, is merely there as the lyricist or whether the poet has a responsibility in terms of the message that they present as well and being socially relevant um, in the context in which they write. So I'll just find my way again. As I said before, um, 
this change in halfway through the poem, and, and some of these aspects mark again an experimentalist approach in the poem and, and the transition of his aesthetic practice. Um, but even where the rhyme seems unstructured and there seems to be a dispensation of that tradition, it is meticulously considered, um, as I said, in an earlier section. Um, there, there are still points that tie it together. There's an earlier section in the poem when I talked about the, um, the rhyme scheme being quite tight. There's one line that says, I am tired, sleep for me, heaven over the hill. And this is the only um, line for a long period of time in the early section of the poem that doesn't have um, a counterpart to rhyme with in terms of end rhymes across the sections. Later on, there's a section where there's, the rhyme is less tight, but it says, the comedy of hollow sound derives from truth and not from satire on our lives. Clog, therefore, purple jack and crimson jill. That's the first, um, that's the counterpart to the rhyme. It's the, it's the first time that there's um, a pairing of that initial rhyme that, that stands out and doesn't have the rhyme in the first place. It, it also brings to light some of those questions that I were talking about that are raised in this in terms of the poet's responsibility and whether it is a case of lyricism or whether there are um, other responsibilities for the poet. But what it also points out is that although there have been criticisms that this isn't necessarily one of his best poems, it, it is deeply considered and it's a well-thought-out piece and, and th there is so much to get from it. Um, <coughs> Sorry, I'll just find where I'm up to. So as I was saying, there is here a deep consideration towards the role of the poet, and not only as aesthetic pr practitioner and lyricist, but as a socially relevant um, and presenting a message. In external texts, um, letters and communications, Stevens did raise um, this concern about wanting to be socially relevant, um, and this is highlighted in, in letters, etc. So... I mean, for the time period that we have here, it's, it's, it's entirely reductive of me to present this as an analysis of the poem. As I said, there's so much more to take from it, and there's so much more stylistically that is um, going on with this poem, and it's an entirely accomplished poem, in my view. Um, so, yeah, that's the, given the time, I can't go into that more. Um, but I also think, given the title, it's important to use some of the time to delve into the context a bit more and delve into that aspect of the poet's responsibility. Um, it's impossible to put the use of the term nigger um, in the context that some have in terms of criticising this poem or commenting on this poem in that the, the term was deemed um, or possibly considered socially acceptable at the time, um, which... Obviously, that perspective gives license to people not necessarily pointing this out as a racist slur. Um, the poem, just to give some more context, was published in 1935. In July of that year, Reuben Stacey was lynched in the area. Um, the title refers back to, in Stephen's Gloss, um, a comment made by Judge Powell a year prior, which was 1934. That was the October... Um, in which Claude Neal was lynched. 
by public spectacle from an oak tree that I believe still stands today. Um, this, led to, this was a significant historical moment. So when Stevens is um, entitling the poem in this way, it's, it's difficult, if not impossible, to believe that he was unaware of um, the context of the poem. That lynching, which you can all, if you haven't already, see online the pictures of, um, led to riots whereby white members of the society um, wanted to drive out African-American communities. Um, over 200 African-Americans were injured. Um, 1935 was also the year which a bill was brought forward um, to outlaw lynching, and that was overturned. But uh, this is just to give context that this wasn't... Um, there was a lot going on and it was a very significant point and this was a point um, that particular lynching led to changes in the law in terms of lynching. Um, so given that these were historical, um, significant historical moments, there's a lot of weight added to what Stevens has done in terms of naming the poem in that way. Um, going back to the role of the poet, we... Or, or I would suggest, I, I would, when I'm looking at it, would have to consider what the poet's doing um, and what kind of propaganda he's presenting when he names a poem like Decorations in a Nigger Cemetery. The point is that he, he does that, and that in itself, for me, is, is problematic. Um, but he also uses that racial slur to advance what from what we can understand or, or what we might read it as an experiment with his aesthetic practice in um, metaphorising African-Americans and their artistic customs in such a cold and dismissive manner because when Stevens appropriates the black figure in this work and, and some others, he, um, he doesn't expand on those stereotypical um, notions or, or uses of the black figure. Then... What I would also suggest in terms of reading the poem is one of the sections that was read out earlier when, when a poem is entitled in such a way and it, it makes a clear signifier of that racial slur, we have to wonder what the poet is doing when the poem um, that points a reader so explicitly to those racial contexts and doesn't open them up. It, it, it seems quite casual and it does seem um, ethically callous. And so I would wonder then, in terms of looking at this section, which I'll just read again. It was when the trees were leafless first in November, and their blackness became apparent that one first knew the eccentric to be the base of design. For me, it's difficult not to read that and think of the lynchings and wonder whose blackness is referred to once the trees became leafless. It also talks about November, which is if we're thinking a year back when this poem was potentially written in 34, a month after the lynching um, that I mentioned earlier of Claude Neal. Um, so in, in that respect, given the context, it would be unimaginable for me to think, um, or not to think of, of the pictures that we still have today, we can still view online, um, of African-Americans being hung on those trees and and these black figures that um, Stevens mm. explicitly references in the poem and, and decides to frame the poem with. Um, 
those lynchings were spurred by obviously white supremacist racism and the propaganda, the propaganda that fueled them. Um, and for me then, with that, we might have to consider Stephen's role and responsibility there as the poet, which is also a concern of his. Um, and even moving forward from that, I would suggest that consequently our own, we, we'd have to consider our own complicity then in um, considering Wallace Stevens as among the greats without paying deep attention to poems like these. And, and that's potentially one of my major concerns in terms of the, um, the landscape with this, is that a poem such as this has given such little attention for a poet we consider as great. And in some way, I think the overlooking of that makes us complicit in some of the propaganda that fuels some of the things that I've mentioned in this poem. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. So let's turn to your choice. So if you say something a little bit about your choice and then we'll read it. Or, yeah. So I've, ch I've chosen 13 ways of looking at a blackbird, which in a way faces almost the opposite problem to, to Mariam's choice in that there has been so much written about it and is one of those you know, iconic, quintessential, sort of Stevensian poems. Um, one of the reasons why I chose it was because so as, I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, my, my work currently is on eco-poetics, and I'm, I'm quite interested in seeing what these interactions between the natural, uh, the, the, the natural subject, as it were, of the poem uh, and the artifice of, of the formal ingenuity of the poem itself might, uh, or how, how they might interact. Um, and what I thought is maybe we could read out the probably the entirety of the poem, just because, as we were talking about it earlier, to not read out the 13 ways of looking at the blackbird would almost seem criminal, really, <laughs> wouldn't it, to have two ways of looking at the blackbird. Um, but it's, it's also a, a much shorter poem um, than um, my decorations. So if we could read it out, and uh, what I thought I might do is just touch upon some of the major critical virtues that have been made towards this poem, as well as look at some, some new perspectives or if they might be possible from a poem that has been, that, that interestingly um, ha has inspired a lot of sort of popular cultural references. Um, so so there, there seems to be something deeply appealing about, about calling something 13 ways of looking at X or Y. So. Mm, Thirteen ways of looking at a blackbird. One. Among twenty snowy mountains, the only moving thing was the eye of the blackbird. Two. I was of three minds, like a tree in which there are three blackbirds. Three. The blackbird whirled in the autumn winds. It was a small part of the pantomime. Four. A man and a woman are one. A man and a woman and a blackbird are one. Five. 
I do not know which to prefer, the beauty of inflections or the beauty of innuendos, the blackbird whistling or just after. Icicles filled the long window with barbaric glass. The shadow of the blackbird crossed it to and fro. The mood traced in the shadow an indecipherable cause. Seven. O thin men of Haddam, why do you imagine golden birds? Do you not see how the blackbird walks around the feet of the women about you? Eight. I know noble accents and lucid, inescapable rhythms, but I know too that the blackbird is involved in what I know. Nine. When the blackbird flew out of sight, it marked the edge of one of many circles. At the sight of blackbirds flying in a green light, even the boards of euphony would cry out sharply. Eleven. He rode over Connecticut in a glass coach. Once, a fear pierced him in that he mistook the shadow of his equipage for blackbirds. Twelve. The river is moving. The blackbird must be flying. Thirteen. It was evening all afternoon. It was snowing and it was going to snow. The blackbird sat in the cedar limbs. Thank you. Would it be okay if I moved slightly forward? I feel I'm slightly yeah, precariously perched. And... <laughs> okay. So, I think following from what Mariam um, was saying, um, there are, amongst the many incredible observations she's made, um, Two of them struck me particularly uh, in terms of the way they might also facilitate a discussion of a poem like, uh, like Blackbirds. The first is to do with a question of lyric responsibility or the ways in which we might think of poetics or poetry or, or indeed a poetic subjectivity as being able to provide us with tools as well as uh, tools of knowing as well as observations and knowledge about the world and its reality and, and how that might be transfigured within the space of the poem, um, which I think is, is a really interesting way that has been critically discussed quite extensively about a poem like Blackbirds in terms of the way in which a poem like this can, can tell us about, about knowing or, uh, or epistemological processes um, that, that someone like Stevens might, might use to discuss um, his notion of reality versus, say, its transformation within the scope of poetry. The other one is um, is sort of the question of color. And so obviously, Mariam's uh, um, discussion of the previous poem discusses a very uh, a political connotation of color in terms of, say, you know, the blackness of the tree versus the blackness of the body that is being lynched. 
um, the violence inherent in almost this over-visibility of, of the black lynched body versus the way in which it becomes almost denatured within the poem where it's unclear of the extent to which blackness has been discussed at all within the poem. Um, blackness is, is another subject that is discussed or, or alluded to or suggested quite extensively in, in 13 ways. And, and certainly uh, a lot of critics have, have spoken about it particularly in terms of almost the sort of landscape scene setting that Stevens seems to do, which is you know, the snowy mountains all around, the eye of the blackbird, um, and, and what does blackness signify there? Um, and, and quite a bit has been written about why is it 13 ways, you know, the eccentricity of that number, uh, or, or is it... There was something I read which I found quite interesting, the 13 and, and sort of the the bad luck that that might signify is cancelled out by the way in which um, the blackness and, and the, the death that this blackness might signify via the, the, the blackbird. Uh, it, it was very interesting to me that the two allegedly cancel each other out rather than produce this almost hyperbolic spectacle of, of, I don't know, death and misfortune, which obviously is, it's not what Stevens is doing, but I found it interesting that almost in our, in critical readings, um, there needs to be this effort to, um, effort towards balancing um, death and misfortune and blackness. Again, speaking to some similar compulsions about sort of the disconcerting nature of blackness. Um, and in many ways, it almost seems as though this is as far away from a political commentary um, as could be possible, because it's it's about a bird, and and is the bird language, and is is language blackness. Um, so uh, the the other thing is um, obviously is uh, you know I'm, I'm sure it's the poem that everyone is is quite familiar with, and and as was evident in the reading. It's composed of these very short fragments or cantos. Mm. Um, and, and something that's, that's often said about this poem is uh, there, there is a comment on its haiku-like structure um, because a, um, a lot of the, well, not a lot, well, some of the fragments are you know, three lines and, and there is almost an epiphanic turn at the end of each of them. Um, and I find that interesting too, in in terms of this this attempt to to try and comprehend um, fragments like these in terms of a pre-existing uh, quote unquote you know Oriental model of reading poetry and what that might do. Just because very often it's it's almost used as almost as a substitute for analysis because there is a set of ideas we can we can pre-associate with the form of the haiku. And therefore, to say, is this potentially like a haiku? Um, can we say something about its proximity to sort of say pound and his interest in Chinese forms um, and so on and so forth? Um, so, what I wanted to do today was also look at some ways in which the form of this poem and the very deliberate um, nature of of the paucity of language in some ways complements. The, the richness of a lot of the observations that are being made within these poems. So I wanted to look at what language is doing within it. And, and in doing so, also try and see whether it might be possible to think about um, the, the ways in which we can speak about 
processes of knowing or positions and positionalities from which knowledge might be expressed in a poem like this. Um, one of the things that, again, I think uh, speaks quite well with, with the analysis we heard from Mariam was the idea of how interested Stevens is in, in questions of in-betweenness or, or liminality in some ways, uh, which is true in 13 ways of, of, of many different, there are many different forms of in-betweenness that are explored. Um, in particular, you know, sort of visually, the way the ways in which this, the blackbirds or the various blackbirds, are located almost at these interstitial spaces between circles and between edges or between trees, and so on. But but equally also in terms of sort of the in betweenness or the liminal possibilities of language, um, as well as in the ways in which this poem is poised between sort of certitude and unknowability, or um, as some critics have called it, you know, poised between potency and action. And what I find particularly interesting is all of these different explorations of liminality and in-betweenness that emerge from within what seems like a very um, definite or a very almost doctrinal um, use of form. And, and what I mean by that is, is just sort of, you know, what a title such as 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird might indicate. Where on the one hand, it's, it's very hard in its certainty. So it, it tells you that there are 13 ways. And is there something definite about this number? Is that, are there only 13 ways of looking at this bird? And at the same time indicates this possibility of, of just the sheer plurality of it. You know, why isn't it a single perspective? Is it a fractured perspective? Is there a necessary ode to incompleteness of perspective that the, uh, or, or an incompleteness of, um, of perspectival work that this poem might indicate? Um, There's also something quite interesting that I was reading about it the, um, the other day, which, which spoke about how the blackbird almost functions as language um, within the scope of this poem. And I think um, particularly um, evident in, in section five, I do not know which to prefer, the beauty of inflections or the beauty of innuendos, the blackbird whistling or just after. Now, now this I think it's just, I mean, apart from being quite beautiful, um, but it's, it's also very interesting in terms of the way in which Stevens talks about the blackbird whistling almost this continuation of sound, or just after, which both seems to indicate a silence, the cessation of whistling, as well as because of the way it has been phrased, um, indicates almost this ringing, whistling persistence that seems to continue even after the whistling has stopped. And there is almost this engagement with both sound and its residual effects, or silence and its residual effects. And the ways in which sort of language seems to persist through silence and the other way around. And what happens, therefore, when we, we consider this blackbird, which is at once language and silence, but is also in so many ways the ways in which we consider the limits of the space that is occupied by this, uh, by this language? Um, why I find this important also is, well, well, for several reasons, I suppose, but 
if we shall I shall I just read it out because it's just uh, yeah. Um, well, I think the ninth fragment, which is mm. when the blackbird flew out of sight, it marked the edge of one of many circles. And I think this is, in some ways, sort of one of the most important points in the poem because it talks about the ways in which the the black the, the knowledge of the blackbird is is both at once the hard edge or the, this clear line that one can discern, and then is almost immediately subverted when you say one of many circles. So the idea that there is this plurality of perspective where it's it concedes a level of certitude and, and then almost takes it away from, from the reader. And, and why these forms of, of edge work might be so important, because of the ways in which there are positions of certainty that, you know, that lyric subjectivities have assumed throughout poetic history, and therefore why this the sort of disavowal of certitude, of this inability to completely know something, where even an assertion of knowledge and an assertion of presence is in fact a concession of absence and of plurality. And why this disorienting, defamiliarizing language might be so important as a statement of poetic knowability and lyric responsibility, I suppose. And I think um, I'll, I'll sort of stop there with just, just the final idea of how this poem, in, in effect, you know, fractures perspective, pluralizes perspective, and is essentially doing a lot of really rich and complex work of, of bringing the black word into tight focus, of then going back and talking about the snowy landscape and so mm. on. But even in doing so, there is, it, it doesn't allow for an accumulation of knowledge, and it almost seems as though it's not as though every you know, canto adds to more. I mean, it, it's not as though at the end of this 13 ways of looking at the blackbird, we somehow know a lot more about the blackbird. If anything, you know even less, and, and that is important because it, it's an acknowledgement of the fact that, that there is a fundamental unknowability and why that might be. The provision, that provisionality of knowledge, that incompleteness and disavowal of knowledge, that austerity of form might be, or, or of language, uh, might be an important political statement on lyric nobility and, and poetic knowledge. So I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It struck me both of you that um, I was thinking of the, the last poem that uh, Stephen's published in, uh, was called July Mountain and one of the lines in it is think it, thinkers without final thoughts and uh, I thought both of you were sort of bringing out that, that was, these are think, we're trying to think about without final thoughts yeah. I like that thought so thinkers without final thoughts so I've chosen uh, this I've chosen the dove in the belly so I'll get I'm about to read that, and I'll say a little bit about that, and then we'll see if we can have a bit more of a chat. So that's on page 319, for those of you carrying the collected, which I was very pleased to see people turning up with the collected poems. The Dove in the Belly. The whole of appearance is a toy. 
For this, the dove in the belly builds his nest and coos. Selah, tempestuous bird. How is it that the rivers shine and hold their mirrors up like excellence collecting excellence? How is it that the wooden trees stand up and live and heap their panniers of green and hold them round the sultry day? Why should these mountains, being high, be also bright, fetched up with snow that never falls to earth? And this great esplanade of corn, miles wide, is something wished for, made effectual, and something more. And the people in costumes, though poor, though raggeder than ruin, have that within them ripe for terraces. O oh, brave salut, deep dove, placate you in your hiddenness. Thank you. It's interesting that um, the light, light, decor light decorations isn't very well known, generally speaking, and it's really great to bring that up. And 13 Ways is, in some senses, too well known, although when you read it again, it's just as fresh as it ever was. Uh, the Dove in the Belly is... Somewhere between the two, it's not terribly well known. It's not terribly not well known. Um, it's not been talked about very much. Um, I think it is a useful poem just to say something about Stevens uh, for myself. So I'll say a little bit about it, and we'll see whether we can open it up just the last few minutes. So I won't say very much about it, but I'm always struck by this first line: that the whole of appearance is a toy. Yeah, the whole of appearance is a toy. Absolutely key thought for Stevens. The whole of appearance is a toy. So you've got that word appearance. So he hasn't said the whole of reality is a toy. The whole of appearance. So what we have is not a reality. We have only how it appears to us, through our senses. You know, this is a... It's almost like a Schopenhauer kind of statement, a Kantian Schopenhauerian state statement. Um, things as they appear to us, uh, through our eye sense, our touch and so on, the whole of appearance... You know, how things appear to us is a toy. I was very struck by that beautiful use of the word toy. So a toy uh, is something that you give a child. Um, a toy is not the real thing. Yeah? Um, so you have a toy train. Uh, it's a train, but it's not a real train. You have a toy horse. It's not a real horse. Um, it's a toy. And also, of course, toys are made up of parts. They're... they're they're confected, they're, stu they're stuck together, they're made up. A toy train's got little wheels on it, they run around and so on. So the whole of appearance, how things appear to us, is a toy. It's something that has a reaction. So a toy is real, in a sense. Do you see what I mean? It's, it's not saying a toy doesn't exist. It exists, but it's not real in, an in another sense. It's not real. A toy train is not an actual train. What you mean? Um, but it doesn't mean to say it's not something, it's just not what you think it is. It's a toy. Yeah. So that strikes me, that first sentence, the brilliant kind of incredible summation of, you know, a sort of Schopenhauerian kind of way of looking at things. The whole of appearance is a toy. Um, and a toy is for something you give to someone, it's something for you. It, it belongs to you, a toy. You have a toy when you're a child, you have your toys your plaything. So it's, it, the whole appearance is something that you experience as something that you have to play with. Um, it's not the real... You can't have any contact with the, 
reality in a certain sense. It's real in one sense, but not real in another sense. Yeah, that's what the toy, I think, says. For this, the dove in the belly builds his nest and coos, Sela, tempestuous bird. So the dove in the belly is this self-sense we have within us, this dove in the belly, this, um, we, for this toy, uh, the whole of appearance is a toy, for this toy of, that we take to be real, um, we forget it's a toy, uh, but for this toy that we take to re, be re, re real, um, for this we build a nest and coo. It's for that that we yearn for, call for, uh, desire. For this, the dove in the belly, for this, the dove in the belly builds his nest and coos. Salah, tempestuous bird. So coos at the end, at the end of the line, and then you've got the line and the, uh, and the stanza break to Sela. Sela means, is a biblical word, it means um, a pause in a song. Um, so Sela, tempestuous bird, pause tempestuous bird. So it's saying the whole appearance is a, is a toy. For this toy, uh, we have this yearning, cooing, uh, desiring, and the poem is saying, Sela, tempestuous bird. Just, let's just pause for a minute. Uh, I haven't got time to go through it all, but he then says, how is it that the rivers shine and hold their mirrors up like excellence, collecting excellence? How is it that the wooden trees stand up and live and heap their panniers of green and hold them around the sultry day? I'm always struck by the fact he says wooden trees. Um, what an odd way of describing trees. In, it, not in any poetry workshop, they'd cross that out and say it's a redundancy. But it's such an interesting redundancy, it becomes an incredible... You'd never describe, think of describing trees as wooden, which is exactly what they are, but you see how it refers back to a toy. The, 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 uh, they, they're wooden trees, stand up and, and live and heap their panniers of gold. Uh, uh, heap their panniers of green, sorry. Um, so what's striking about these set of beautiful descriptions, he's wonderful at these very brief descriptions of the world, but he, he, they're questions. If they weren't questions, they'd be like a romantic statement. If you just said, the rivers shine and hold, up, hold their mirrors up like excellence, collecting excellence, that could almost be Wordsworth or something like that. It's got, it would have that kind of romantic certitude about it. But the fact that he says, how is it that the rivers shine? Uh, um, and, and, uh, how is it that rivers shine and hold their mirrors up like excellence, uh, collecting excellence. How is it that wooden trees stand up and live? So he's saying the whole of existence is a toy for this, this inner sense that we have, this so often painful inner sense of it. We yearn for that toy. Um, and yet how is it that the trees stand up and live and heap their panniers of gold? How is it? And so on. So he's asking philosophical questions. One very last thing before we open it out, which is, he says, and the people in costumes, though poor, though raggeder than ruin, which is incredible, and obviously highly metaphorical, so he doesn't mean literally poor, he doesn't mean though the poor people, he means though poor, though raggeder than ruin, which means a kind of spiritual, even for him, religious poverty. Um, poverty is a key term for, uh, I mean, it goes back to like decorations, it's to do with poverty. Um, he, his thought was that human beings, have, since the death of God, are poor. How do we uh, make up for that poverty? Yeah? Um, so that's some thoughts about the dove in the belly. Um, 
I wonder whether we can just, for the last few minutes, just, well not minutes, one or two minutes, just go back and, is there anything else that you'd want to bring in on any of those poems, from the, either of the other two, Mara? Um, I mean, I think it's, well, one thing that stuck out to me when you just referenced it then was the poverty and then um, light decorations. There's, I think it's, references the universal poverty. Yeah, that's um, right, yeah. And it's the same sort of thing, really. So there were mm. all of those concerns threaded through that poem as well. Mm. I thought mm. that was interesting. Mm. I was struck by, um, you know, a statement that could be uh, a statement of romantic certainty, but isn't because it's a question. And that subversion that we have in the river is moving, the blackbird must be flying, because mm. because that takes. What, what might be a statement of certainty, the river is moving, which itself, of course, it's not. It, it, I mean, there are all of these Heraclitian complexities there. Mm. Um, but then immediately that being turned to the blackbird must be flying, which is, although it's, a, it's, it's almost asserting a certainty that just by the way it's grammatically structured then tells you that, that it betrays the, the inadequacy of, of that knowledge mm. and therefore what it does to, to change the certainty of the moving river. Mm. But I, I really liked the idea mm. of something that could be a statement of certitude but is actually not. Mm. Very interesting. Then. Also interesting how if you said the, the river is moving and the blackbird is flying, yes. it wouldn't be a poem, would no. it? Um, the blackbird must be flying. Mm. It's very odd. You, don't, you, you can't yes. place yourself in relation no. to it. So I'm afraid we're running out of time, but that gives you a little bit of a taste, just of you know, three poems of, of Stevens. It gives you a little bit of a taste of how much there is to it. Well, I'm struck with Mara, and you're, you're saying just how much there is to say about uh, light decorations, mm. even though we, many of us know 13 ways mm. so well. When you read it again, hear it again, and when you just go to that, you know, it must be flying, yeah. you see how much more is still there. And the dove and the belly... Uh, you've still got this whole appearance of the toy, which you could literally sort of riff on for mm. the rest of the afternoon. So I hope at least that's given you a taste for Stephen's poetry, especially if you weren't here this morning for the, for the, the man with the blue guitar. And I hope you'll come back into this room in uh, an hour's time uh, to hear... I mean, it's going to be in conversation with Mark Doty, uh, who's a great fan of Stephen's, has flown over to talk about Stephen. So... Uh, you've got a real treat coming this evening, so thank you very much.